Luke chapter 2, and we'll begin there at the first verse. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph went out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Amen. May the Lord add to us this morning the blessing of his word. We come to this text, of course, finding ourselves at what really is the climax of human history. But as we've noticed, friend, the gospel writer, writing under inspiration of God's spirit, takes us perhaps to one of the least likeliest of places. He takes us not even here to the stable in which Christ was born. He takes us to pasture land. He takes us to shepherds, not to kings and not to princes, to give the first proclamation of Christ after his birth. He takes us to Merland. He takes us, he takes us to wilderness to show us how the heavenly host set forth this newborn Christ. Now, friend, as we've looked at this text before, we also must recognize that this is heaven's account of these things. Luke is doing the work of a historian, but he is writing every word under inspiration of God's Spirit. This is, as Luke tells us in Luke 1, an account from above. And so, beloved, if we take up this account, we can't, we can't neglect any detail. Every detail that the Word of God has provided for us at this momentous occasion is crucial to us. Every detail worth noting. And so we take up two verses that are so very familiar to us. Two verses that perhaps most would know, could even recite by memory, even if they themselves would not profess to be Christians. That detail is given to us in verses 13 and 14. The cry of the angelic host. The gospel writer does not tell us much. He doesn't tell us, as we said before, even the day that Christ was born. He doesn't give us a lot of the details surrounding the birth of Christ. He does not even tell us where this pasture land is located. But he tells us this. He tells us 
as he makes God's account of the Son. What we have here in our, verse, in our two verses this morning. And so I want us to take up these two verses. And I want us to notice, friend, first of all, what the text is not saying. As I said before, this, of course, is a text that we all know quite well. And I'm referring primarily to the 14th verse. The world will have this plastered on their billboards. Even that kind of cultural Christianity that's alive and well among us still. Come December time, we'll repeat these words on billboards, TV programs, across the radio. But friend, I want you to understand as we come to this text that these words, principally what you have in verse 14, are so terribly misunderstood. I want you to know, friend, first of all, that what you have in the 14th verse is not how many people take it. Namely, this is not a command. The angelic hosts are not summoning here the world to give glory to God. And to make peace on earth. In other words, the text does not read, as, it's, as many read it in verse 14, Give glory to God and make peace on earth and with your fellow men. That's not what this text is saying at all. Not in the least. Friend, in this text, in the 14th verse, you have the angelic hosts responding to what's gone before. Not with imperatives, not with commands, but with indicatives. With statements of fact, matters of fact, the angels tell us. What do I mean? Well, friend, as we look at verse 14, you have, first of all, the angelic host crying glory to God in the highest. They are saying, this is what they perceive. Matthew Paul writes, here the angels declare their perception or apprehension. The truth concerning these acts of providence before them. Here the angels are crying, give glory to God. No. They're saying God has been glorified. God has been glorified in this moment. This moment that is now announced to you shepherds. You see, friend, the text reads, give glory to God in the highest. And the word there, the highest, is really a reference to heaven. If you look through the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this phrase comes up several places. And Job, the writer puts thus, my witness is in heaven and my record on high. That's our phrase from this text. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Psalm 148. Our word again. And even Luke 19. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other words, friend, what you have here is that the glory of God in this moment when Christ is born is specially manifest in the highest places. In the highest heaven. We're thinking here, of course, of the third heavens. The angelic hosts are saying this is a matter of fact. The glory of God has been peculiarly manifest. Even in the highest places. Because of the birth of this Christ. Here, even in the city of David. But then you have that parallel phrase. Peace on earth. And again, friend, we can't miss... At this stage, that this is still indicative, not imperative. The, mat, the, the things that are mentioned here are mentioned as matters of fact. This is not a command. This is not a well-wish for humanity. This is a statement. A statement of truth. In other words, peace has come on earth. But it's important for us to understand what kind of peace is in view. 
In the coming of Christ, the angelic hosts do not perceive that kind of peace that so many would pander and so many would look for today. I mean, that peace Christ immediately tells us is not the kind of peace that He came to bring in His first coming. Note what He says. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and etc. What Christ is saying here is, the kind of peace that I am coming to bring is not simply world peace. And even if we want to see the peace of the nation somehow remotely attached to what the angels see, like for instance the nations laying down their weapons in service to Christ, as we have prophesied in Isaiah 2, that still is only the remotest sense that we can understand this text. Friend, the angelic hosts are crying here that peace has come. Peace has been made in the coming of Christ. And what kind of peace is that? You don't have to go far into the text of Scripture to find the answer. This, of course, is that peace between heaven and earth, between God and man. We have peace, writes the Apostle, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is this Christ who made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. The angelic hosts are saying this peace has come. In the birth of Christ, it's a matter of fact. Peace is on earth. Let the nations roar and wage war. This peace stands. But thirdly, friend, you have in that last line of the 14th verse this phrase, goodwill toward men. And throughout the running centuries, this is a phrase that has has received so much attention and so much ink has been spilled over the precise meaning of, of the angels here. And the difficulty is, is that in this text, the word men here is in the dative. The sense is, is that here the men are possessed of something. And so some have erroneously said here that verse 14 refers to men of goodwill. That is men who possess a favorable disposition. But as you look throughout the text, that word, that thing that these men are supposed to possess, is very clearly defined for us throughout the scriptures. That word goodwill occurs several times. I'll just read to you a few accounts. Take, for instance, Ephesians 1. That word, eudoxios, is rendered here, Ephesians 1, 5, thus. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's our word. The word goodwill in Luke 2.14 is the word good pleasure in Ephesians 1.5. Again, Ephesians 1, 1 verse 9 reads, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, again our word, which he hath purposed in himself. Philippians 2.13, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians 2.11 we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What's the point? Well, a friend of the angelic host are saying something very pointed. They're telling us who these ones are to whom the peace of God comes. And note who it is. 
It is those who are objects of God's pleasure. Objects of God's favor. One commentator puts it this way. The phrase here in 2.14 refers to that idea that to be of God's good pleasure is to be established in a favored relationship with Him in which His mercy and His power are experienced through His faithfulness to the covenant. We could paraphrase then everything that we've said up to this point. The so very well-known verse could read this. The angels cry, In Christ's birth we perceive God's glory in the highest heavens and peace on earth to men of God's good pleasure, or simply peace on earth to men favored by God. This is what the angelic hosts are crying as they look at the birth of this Christ, as they look at this one who has come. They say, "This is a, this, this, through this birth, God's glory is manifest even more brilliantly in the highest heavens, the created beings. And they see even on earth to those whom God has chosen. A sure token of peace. A token and an accomplishment of reconciliation with God. And so there are two things that we draw from this. The first is, is that this is a clear manifestation. As the angels appear in this moment, they do so manifesting God's approbation. Not merely in the birth of Christ, but of what's gone immediately before. The proclamation of this birth. The proclamation that says, to you is born this day the city of David a Savior. To you, lowly sinner, to you is this given. And friend, note that it's immediately after that proclamation that the heavens seemed open, the angelic host doing God's bidding, setting forward God's approbation. In other words, friend, what you have here is this idea that even heaven is delighted in offering Christ to mean lowly sinners. This could have come before. The angelic host could have cried from the moment that Christ had entered the world. But it was only after the proclamation of the gospel that you have this wonderful display of glory, of delight. But the second thing that we can't miss from this text also is this. That here we have a heavenly interpretation of Christ's birth. Here we have heaven's account of what was accomplished and what was exhibited. When Christ was born. Friend, there are so many people who would interpret for us what took place in Bethlehem. There are so many people who would pontificate on what it is that really was accomplished that night. When Christ was born and the shepherds were told about the Savior who was born. But here, friend, it is not the opinion of men that we're dealing with. This is God's account. God's account which says... That in the birth of Christ, God's glory is most manifest even in the highest of heavens. And peace on earth is known to those who are favored by God. And that brings us to our main theme for this morning. And that is just this. That divine glory and grace are most clearly manifest in Christ. Divine glory and grace are most clearly manifest in Christ. And I want us to take that up under those two headings. I want us to take up, first of all, the the glory of God and the grace of God as it's exhibited to us in Christ. And so, first of all, the glory of God. The word here in the original is doxa, of course, from which we get the word doxology. And the sense is so very basic. It can mean, in the imperative, give praise or give honor or often translated, give glory to God. 
But in a case like ours where it's not a command, where it's a statement of fact, the angelic hosts are crying, this God is glorious. Well, what does he mean? What does he mean, especially if we're saying that this is somehow related to the birth of Christ? Well, friend, we're talking here not about God's essential glory. That glory that he has infinitely from himself, from which nothing can be detracted or anything added. We're thinking here primarily about the manifestation of that glory. As one theologian put it, we're here thinking about the bright display of God's perfections. His holiness, his power, his wisdom, his goodness. And the angelic hosts are saying that in this moment, Christ, in the birth of Christ, God's perfections are manifest brilliantly. In the birth of Christ, the glory of God shines forth powerfully. You see, friend, here the angels look at this birth as seeing that it is declarative. It makes apparent the glory of Jehovah. But beloved, as we look at this text, we need to recognize, of course, that this glory is manifest, as we've just said, after the proclamation of the gospel. This is not only a declaration of what has been done, what has been accomplished in Bethlehem, but it is a response, heaven's response to this Christ being offered to sinners. And what you see here then, friend, is that the angelic host looking at Christ and even the gospel proclamation They say that even in the highest of heavens, even among the highest of created beings, when they see Christ and they see Christ offered to sinners, they say, here we see a clear picture of the glory of our God. Here they cry, we see the perfections of God exhibited. Here we see His wisdom and His goodness and His holiness, all of these things exalted in height. And so, friend, we have here this idea that Christ, to men and to angels, is the clearest manifestation of divine glory. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Friend, we've already been told that this is the Son of the Most High. This is the unique Son of God. The only begotten Son. Begotten and not made. Equal with the Father. God of God, light of light, and very God of very God. But to put it all in scriptural terms, friend, this is the Christ of whom the Apostle writes. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He writes later, He is the brightness of His glory, the Father's glory, the express image of His person. This is the one whom John tells us. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. In other words, friend, this one who the angels see is exhibiting the glory of God in a peculiar way, is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. This is the incarnate Son of God that they have in view. And beloved, that means that every perfection, every divine attribute is found in Him. We shouldn't be surprised that then through this Christ, the glory of God is exhibited in a peculiar manner. You see, friend, the apostle is so very clear. It's even in the text that we read from 2 Corinthians. Note how the apostle writes it. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. And note this. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face 
of Jesus Christ. This one who is God of God, light of light, and very God of very God. The apostle tells us it is in his face that the spirit of God leads us to see the glory of God peculiarly. This is the very thing that the angelic hosts cry. They, as celestial beings, untainted by sin, still see in Christ the glory of God peculiarly manifest. Because He is, of course, God. We can say of Christ as we say of Jehovah, as they are one. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord. When the angelic hosts see this Christ, friend, we can't we can't forget that they are saying that the excellency of Christ is undiminished. Note what they've just said to these shepherds. They've told the shepherds, you're going to find this Christ wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a trough with no room given to him, not only not by kings, but even not by those who are his countrymen. And here the angelic hosts, notwithstanding all of that, say, we see here the glory of God. We see in Him the wisdom of God. The uncreated, the eternal wisdom of God. We see in Him the beauty of God that is from everlasting. We see in Him all the perfections of deity. Let men revile Him as they will. You see, beloved, what you have in this text is a very clear statement. They're looking to a person who is in full possession of divine holiness, goodness, righteousness, and every perfection. But even throughout the life of Christ, as I believe it's appropriate for us to look to the birth as representing the whole, you find how Christ will exhibit the glory of God. You see this in the miracles. Note how the gospel writers bring this to us. The multitude wondered, says Matthew, When they saw the dumb to speak, and and the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and note this, and they glorified the God of Israel. And through his life, then, this glory would be manifest. As Christ works miracles, it is supposed to be attributed to the hand of God, because it is the Son of God who works them. And he works them by divine power. And so, says the Gospel writer, they see the glory of God even in his miracle working. And they see this throughout his whole life, such that in John 17, the fourth verse, Christ says boldly to the Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Note the boldness. The glory of God would be manifest through the life of Christ. The perfections of God peculiarly manifest to men and to angels through his whole life. But friend, especially, the gospel writers tell us, would the glory of God be manifest in the final accomplishment of this work. Note how the Father speaks to the Son before the cross. John 12. Christ prays, Father, glorify thy name. The response. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it. Saying that his name was glorified through Christ's ministry. But then note this, and will glorify it again. 
I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then says Jesus in John 13. Jesus said after Judas leaves to betray him. Now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him. God himself also shall glorify him in himself. And shall straightway glorify him. You see, friend, what you have in this text, anticipated in the birth, but really running throughout the entirety of the redemption's accomplishment, the glory of God is what is exhibited. In Christ's miracle working, even in his death on the cross, and of course in his resurrection and ascension, it is the glory of God that is the aim. And it is the glory of God that is made manifest. None other, friend, none other. And you say, how is this? Beloved, I can give it to you in the words that we so often sing. The words coming to us from Psalm 85. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed mutually. The idea that the psalmist is saying there is that the attributes of God, as it were, are conspired and exhibited in Christ. Do you wish to see the glory of God? Do you wish to see the glory of His mercy and of His goodness? Do you wish to see His righteousness and His holiness? Do you wish to see all of these things met in one? Friend, you can only see them all met together in Christ. All of these converge upon and are exhibited brilliantly through the Son. You see, friend, to illustrate We know, of course, the scripture teaches us that if we look at the book of nature, we see the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of our God. Of course they do. And we see, of course, manifestations of divine glory throughout the Old Testament. We have those wonderful moments like Moses standing at the burning bush. We have those moments where Manoah and his wife stand at an altar that is blessed by God. We have God appearing in thunder and an earthquake at Sinai. But you see, friend, with one voice, the scripture says this. The clearest, the greatest manifestation of divine glory is in the Son. It is in Christ. The heavenly host could see the sun rising. The heavenly host could see the glory of God in His handiwork. But when they see Christ, they say, Oh, here God is glorified. In Him God is glorified. The idea is that there is superlative manifestation of the glory here found. You see, beloved, a pagan can look at a sunrise and a sunset and wonder at its maker. The heathen have often looked at the created realm and marveled at the one who fashioned and upholds these things by his own power. But only the regenerate can look to Christ and see that in his face they have the glory of God peculiarly manifest and approach him then with love and awe. Yes, we should look at the book of nature and see the glory of God writ large. But friend, if we don't see the glory of God peculiarly manifest in Christ, we are no better than the heathen. And we can't join in with the angels here. 
And beloved of the glory of Christ, here coaxes praise from heaven. From heavenly hosts, to whom Christ was not given as mediator for them. To whom Christ is not married. To whom Christ did not take upon himself their nature. If it even coaxed from them such praise, how much more should it coax from us praise for such a Christ? Who's not only told that he would be given, but even was told that he'd be given for us. Given to us. Not only our neighbor, but our husband. Friend, if that's the glory of God manifest in Christ, that brings us secondly and finally to the grace of God, as we see it in this text. You know here that the angels cry here that on earth, Peace has come. And the word peace there in the original is irene, which of course is the same word from which we get the word irenic. The sense is, is that peace has been secured. And we've already said before what kind of peace is in view. We're not here talking about the laying down of weapons. We're not talking here about the nations emptying their nuclear arsenals. We're talking about that greater and that higher peace that is secured through Christ, whereby men are reconciled to God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, is the ground and foundation of the peace that the angelic host see in Christ's birth. But friend, what you can't miss at this, at this juncture is that the angelic host see in the birth of Christ this grace manifested. And that shouldn't surprise us. Note how John says it, and we know the words well. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Note what He says here. Yes, of course, the accomplishment of redemption is in Christ. But even the apostles say that even in sending Christ, there is a manifestation of the divine love. There is a placarding of divine love. In other words, friend, as the apostles and as the angels look at Christ, they see the accomplishment and they see the token of divine love, this peace of the angels' praise. But of course they look here and they see that even in the birth of Christ and everything that is to come, that peace is secured. The prophet writes, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Words we know well, but note what follows. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What must be exacted that you and I might have peace with God was exacted from Christ. The prophet says, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The sense is, is the very thing that Christ says to his disciples. I've spoken unto you, he says, that in me ye might have peace. The peace that the angelic see here is a peace that is purchased by Christ and found only in Christ. Beloved, as we look at this text, we can't miss that here you have the angels seeing Christ as a chief token. The ultimate olive branch given between heaven and earth to the sons of men. And beloved, what a token is it? We could meditate for years. No, we could meditate for eons on just those words. 
that God gave His only begotten Son. An expression of love. An expression of love, friend, that you and I could never fathom the depths thereof. There was never a father that loved his son so. And there was never a son so worthy of a father's love. And yet, says the scriptures, the father gave the son. Beloved, as you look at this text, you see here the angels see just. Oh, they see how. How wondrous it is that such a son is given. They look at this Christ and they say, we've proclaimed him holy. Holy, 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 they've cried. From their creation till now. They've said, this one is worthy of all praise and all glory. That all of the heavens are as dust before him. Even the heavens of heavens are impure before him. And here we come and we see Him given. Given to sinners. This One whom we extol. This One whom we love. And more than this, the One whom we know has the Father's full heart. We see Him given to sinners. They see here a token friend that you and I could never fathom. We will spend all of eternity seeking just to come to the foothills of what is exhibited here. How could the angels not break loose to see such a Christ given in such a way for such sinners? How could they not cry? But beloved, it's not just that they saw this as a token. They also see that this is the only way by which men would have peace. Twice the prophet tells us this. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Twice God's mouthpiece cries, there is no peace to the wicked. None. And beloved, you can't, you can't forget that you and I describe in our nature are described thus. We are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. That is all of us by nature. There is no peace known to men. No real peace, says the Scriptures, known to men apart from Christ. Only, only turmoil. Only troubled water. Only difficulty. And only strife. And that arising from their enmity with God. But here the angelic hosts cry, Here's peace given to men. Here is peace. Oh friend, I know that the world is captivated right now by, by all the kinds of talks that could be taking place between Ukraine and Russia. And all we long to see, of course, the bloodshed stopped. But I want you to know something, friend, this morning. The angelic hosts are not looking at the Ukraine. They're not looking at any hope here that might be brokered between nations. They are looking to the only one who can secure real and everlasting peace. And they are crying, this is the reason. This is the reason for our praise and our exaltation. Because it is in Christ alone that this peace is secured. You see, friend, this is the kind of peace. This is the kind of peace that gives rise to that call. A call that we know so well, but that we cannot hear often enough. Hear the call. Hear Christ here offering this peace that the angels see. 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Son of God urging men to take the terms of peace offered by God. Come to me and find rest. Oh, but beloved, you know that illustration. We thought about it before. How do men respond to this? This true peace that the angels see. You have it in Isaiah 55. Oh, come, come, says Jehovah. Come to the waters. And who? Come you that have no money. Come buy and eat. But what is it that they're doing? The prophet envisions them slipping their hand into their money bag. To pull out money to buy peace that is not satisfying. To buy false peace. They hear the cries, come, come at no cost to yourself. Come freely. And here they go and they seek to find some kind of treaty with death. The the prophets calls it a covenant with death they quickly make. But all the while the Lord Christ says, come to me. You might have this peace. This is the peace, friend, that the angelic hosts are extolling. Not goodwill one man to the other. That's a corollary. It flows from this greater peace. But it's this greatest peace. This full peace that the angels are fixed upon. This thing only found in Christ. And so, friend, come to the free market. Come and broker terms, these terms, with the Lord God. Now, beloved, as we close, just a few thoughts. Note here, friend, the paradox. The angelic hosts are crying that as they look at Christ, they see the glory of God exhibited peculiarly, strangely. And yet, friend, as we've already said, this is just after they've described him as one lying in a trough and wrapped in swaddling clothes. You see, friend, the heavenly perspective is one that sees, even in the humiliation of Christ, that this is the clearest manifestation, the final word, as it were, from the Father of His glory. You see, friend, this glory that is beheld here by sinners can only be held held by, by faith. Only by faith. The question, of course, is, well, do we see Christ in this way? We said before that this is heaven's interpretation of the birth of Christ. And so the question is, do we see it in the way that heaven would have us see it? I want you to notice, friend, that the angelic hosts do give us some marks to help us answer that very question. Note their focus. Their focus in this moment is upon the glory of God. And beloved, all of those who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ have that same focus. It is the glory of God that they see primarily in the work, both in the accomplishment and in the application of the gospel. I've read these words to you before, but I think David Brainerd most helpfully illustrates this point. 
Writing in his journal after his conversion, he says this. He says here, at this time, the way of salvation opened to me with such infinite wisdom, suitableness, and excellency, that I wondered I should ever have thought any other way of salvation. I was amazed that I had not dropped my own contrivances and complied with this lovely, blessed, and excellent way before. And then he goes on to write, If I could have ever been saved by my own duties, or any other way that I had formerly in, in, contrived, my soul would now have refused it. His point is, he sees in the gospel that God is glorified, and that's what he craves. He craves most of all to see Jehovah uplifted. And so when he sings mercy and truth, the righteousness and the goodness of God are met together in the Son. He rejoices that, that, that God is so glorified. Yes, he rejoices in the salvation given to him. But he loves most that his God is exalted in this way. Is that true of you, friend? Is the thing that allures you to Christ the fact that God glorifies his name? Above every name. The second mark, of course, is that these angels represent people, represent beings rather, that do not have any contempt for Christ, even in his estate of humiliation. They know that he is the Son of God. Let the world say what it will, let appearances be what they may. They perceive him to be what he is, and so do all who come to Christ truly by faith. The world will say many things about Christ, will describe all kinds of Christs to us. But those, friend, those who truly look to Christ by faith, find the Christ of Scripture, their love and their delight. Let the world say what it will. But also, friend, from this text, we find too that the angelic host point to Christ as the only source of this peculiar exaltation of God's name and the only source of this peace between heaven and earth. And so do all of those who have true faith. They look for these things only through Christ. Friend, they cut off their covenant with death. They seek to die daily to the covenant of works that they might hold only to Christ. You see, friend, that is, these are the marks of those who have heaven's perspective of the birth of Christ. And for the godly then, for those who are in Christ, beloved, this text holds out to us that very simple reality. That reality that peace has been secured. This is not a well-wish from heaven. This is not a, I hope that earth will know. This is not, I hope that the people of God will know peace with God. This is a statement of fact. This is a statement of truth. And beloved, for those who are in Christ, friend, you can look to the entire life of Christ, says the angels, and see that this is an accomplished fact. Peace has been achieved by God through His Son for you. You who look to Him by faith, even this morning, friend, everyone who stands in Christ draws down upon this peace that is already secured. That the angelic hosts find here typified, not only typified, but even accomplished. Even in this text, even 2,028 years ago. This is not a possibility that they praise. 
but a certainty. The closing exhortation then is just this, isn't it? To come to this Christ. Friend, you and I need daily to come to him. No, not because we need to be justified again. Not because the redemption of Christ is insufficient. But because, friend, we must always be going to that fountain of living water. And always spurning those broken cisterns that do not hold. In other words, friend, we must always be crying that there is no other way that we might know peace with God than through Christ. And friend, in other words, we must also recognize that there is no other way that we, wish we should seek the exaltation of God but through him. Beloved, everything in this text cries, go to him. And God willing, next Lord's Day, when we take up the remaining verses, we find that the shepherds get that message. They hear the heavenly host, and their first thought is, I must go to him. And so go to him. He's the one who this morning cries, come to me. All ye, the weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. Amen.